0: Today we return to our series on the ancient book of Daniel. And as you know, if you've been with us, I'm entitling this series, Keeping Faith in a Corrupt Culture. Because in addition to being sacred history, in addition to sharing divine prophecy, the book of Daniel is a virtual manual for people who want to remain faithful to God when they find themselves in a corrupt cultural environment, a place where their sacred convictions can gradually erode and become secular compromises. I'm going to pick up the story exactly where we left off, Daniel chapter 1, verse 8. But Daniel made up his mind that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food or with the wine which he drank. So he sought permission from the commander of the officials that he might not defile himself. Today I'm going to talk about the fourth choice that Daniel and his three friends made. And you're going to see that this one was the defining choice. Let's pray together. Gracious Heavenly Father, in these coming moments, I need your empowering through the Holy Spirit if I'm going to discharge my responsibility faithfully by preaching and teaching your word accurately. And we're all going to need the work of the Holy Spirit to understand your truth, embrace it by faith, and apply it. So as we often pray in this moment, Spirit of the living God, fall fresh upon us in this never-to-be-repeated moment. Help us to hear from you. And respond appropriately. We pray that for the honor of Christ, for the sake of people who need us to be the church. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. And as we listen for God's voice through his word today, may the Lord be with you. Daniel opens with the intriguing immigration story of four displaced teenage boys. They had been forcibly, traumatically separated from their families and their homeland. They had been resettled in a place they despised, Babylon, and they had been targeted for civil service jobs. And in light of that, they soon found themselves facing four very difficult choices, choices that would reveal who they were. And I put it in those terms because in matters of faith, it is our choices more than our words that reveal our identity. We come by words rather easily, but choices actually reveal who we are. Now surprisingly, as we saw two weeks ago, the boys initially agreed to three things that they had to find distasteful. A pagan education service under a pagan ruler, and Babylonian names. And in making those choices, the boys demonstrated a wisdom beyond their years. And if I could pause right here, let me remind you, every believer can possess a wisdom beyond their years. Because God says in the epistle to James, if anybody lacks wisdom, let them what? Ask of God. And he gives it cheerfully in overflowing measure. And if you tap into the wisdom of God who's been around longer than anybody else, you can have wisdom beyond your years. Well, the boys had that kind of wisdom, so they understood it's possible to be involved with a corrupt culture without being devoted to that culture. Involvement with the culture is necessary for witness, but devotion to a culture betrays God. And that sets the stage for understanding the boys' fourth choice. They refused the king's five-star menu and his wine list. And it appeared at first glance to be a classic example of what Jesus later sarcastically described as straining at gnats while swallowing camels. After all, after everything they had already agreed to, education, service, Babylonian names, why now risk death by drawing the line at the dinner table of all places? Well, obviously, they must have felt that choice, unlike the first three, was a defining choice. And they were exactly correct. Now there are two possible explanations for the boy's choice, for their refusal. The first and the most obvious is the Jewish dietary laws that God gave to the people of Israel in the book of Leviticus. We now know that those laws weren't essentially about food per se. God made that clear centuries later when he had all forms of previously prohibited animals for the Jewish diet appear to Peter in a vision. Remember, they were in a sheet, and he said, none of that's unclean. Eat any of it. So it was never about the food per se. Leviticus 20 tells us what it was about. Their unique dietary laws were meant to be symbolic. They were meant to stand for something. They were meant to be a sign of the conviction, the persuasion that made Israel distinct from all of their neighbors in this world. Their persuasion, their conviction that there is only one true and living God. And God takes his symbols seriously. The boys knew that because centuries earlier when Moses struck the rock in the wilderness a second time He violated and compromised God's symbolism, and that's why he wasn't permitted to enter the land of promise. God doesn't want his symbols contradicted. God doesn't want his symbols compromised. That's yet another reason why the church needs to be a force against rampant divorce in our culture, because divorce violates God's symbolism. Because the union of a man and a woman is symbolic of what? The union between Christ and the church. And God doesn't dissolve that union. And when we dissolve it, we're violating God's symbolism. Now, I don't say that to dump guilt on you if you're a divorced person. If you know me, you know that's not the case. I'm just saying God takes his symbols very seriously because they stand for spiritual realities he doesn't want lost. So for these boys, consuming food that had been previously offered to idols was unthinkable. In Babylon, the kitchen and the temple were a package deal. Every entree was offered to idols as it was being prepared. So the issue for the boys wasn't fat grams sodium intake, or the potential of alcoholism. The issue was faithfulness to God's symbols of devotion. And there's a lesson, an abiding lesson for us in that. People are prone to dismiss the significance of symbolic gestures. In fact, they often use the term symbolic gesture in a derogatory way. They say, oh, it was merely a symbolic gesture. It didn't have any content. It didn't have any legs to stand on. It didn't have any power. It didn't change anything. It made the people feel better about themselves, but it didn't produce any real change. And sometimes those accusations against symbolic gestures are true. Sometimes they are devoid of content. But not always, not always. Because I would remind you, God places value and sees value in symbolic gestures. Baptism, symbolic gesture. Communion, symbolic gesture. Laying on of hands during prayer, symbolic gesture. God knows symbolic gestures can have significant benefits tied to them. First of all, symbolic gestures remind us of our true identity and our commitment to God. And in a world where our identity and our commitment are assaulted daily through the false narratives of unbelief, we need those reminders. The boys in Babylon, we're going to need those reminders. And here's why the path to compromise faith often begins with forgetfulness. We tend to get into the weeds in our walk with God when we forget some important principle or some important truth. Now, how do I know that? As you read the Bible, whenever God is addressing his people in a time when they've gotten off the beaten path, when they've got away from his will for them, he always in his appeal to them says the same three things, remember, repent, and return. Remember, repent, and return. Remember what you used to do. Remember how it used to be. Repent of getting away from it and return to it. But the first word is always remember. So we get off the beaten path when we forget important things. And symbolic gestures keep those things in our consciousness all the time. And the boys would need that. Secondly, symbolic gestures fuel our hope. Hope has been defined as the untiring, stubborn conviction that I'm not permanently locked into my present predicament, that there will be a way out. And the symbolic gestures that God commands in Scripture, like communion, for example, remind us we have hope. Because the gesture of communion reminds us that God's creation is not ticketed for destruction and it's not ticketed for decay. It's ticketed for restoration and redemption because every time we share the cup, we say this is the new covenant in his blood and we drink this together until he comes. And that until he comes reminds us he is coming right on time just as he promised and when he does he's going to restore his creation to what it was always intended to be so things won't always be broken now the connection that connection between hope and symbolic gestures there are many powerful examples of it in human history but let me lift one out of the tragically inconsistent history of our own nation. The example of the spirituals, songs of worship and praise that were sung by slaves during one of the ugliest chapters of our nation's history. As the slaves sang those songs, they were an entirely symbolic gesture. Why do I say that? Because singing those songs didn't make slavery go away. Singing those songs didn't cause their chains to melt. Singing those songs didn't change the minds of the slave owners, but the act of singing them kept their souls intact. It reminded them that they were not permanently trapped in that unspeakable cruelty. As the praises passed over their lips, it reminded them that evil men could chain their bodies, but evil men could not change their, or chain their souls as they sang the refrains of Swing Low, Sweet Chariot. It helped them to hold stubbornly to a hope that otherwise could have easily slipped through their bruised and callous fingers, the hope that one day God was going to give them an eternal, lasting, total liberation, that their capital M, Master, was one day going to deliver them and no pretentious, evil, small M, Master, could deny them their destiny in God. That symbolic gesture fueled the hope of many a man, many, many a woman, many a child, and help them to carry on. (laughs) Furthermore, the act of making a symbolic gesture strengthens both our commitment and our witness because it gives shape to things that otherwise are invisible. I've done hundreds of wedding ceremonies, and every ceremony, the groom and the bride exchange wedding rings. And that wedding ring gives shape To what is otherwise invisible, their covenant commitment to one another. And symbolic gestures, by giving shape to our devotion to God, strengthen our commitment and our witness. Now, if Jesus' followers sometimes fail to appreciate the importance of symbolic gestures, the world generally does not. And that's why symbolic gestures can be dangerous. They can be dangerous. For example, baptism. It's not dangerous in Pittsburgh, but baptism in an Islamic country would result in your execution. And it's the same symbol. Baptism in Israel would result in you being shunned and declared as virtually dead. The simple act of wearing a cross or praying before eating lunch has cost people around the world their job, including here in the United States. Now in Daniel's case, in the case for his three friends, refusing Nebuchadnezzar's food was a dangerous act. And the reason why it was so dangerous suggests what I believe to be the real fundamental reason for the boy's refusal. Because I don't believe it was primarily about God's dietary laws. And let me explain why. Because Babylon was an idol-worshiping nation, again, all of its food would be offered to idols. All of its food would be considered unclean, including the vegetables that the boys wanted to consume rather than the king's meat. And the dietary laws of Leviticus never prohibited the consumption of wine. That wasn't an issue. And later in the book, Daniel writes about temporarily abstaining from meat, which means by that point in the story, he was used to consuming meat. So, I'd like to suggest the real reason behind their choice. And the thing that made it a defining choice was not God's symbolism, but Babylonian symbolism. Now, what do I mean? In Babylonian culture, eating the king's food symbolized covenant loyalty to the king. In the ancient world, sharing food at somebody's table was seen as an act that cemented a bond between people. That's why Jesus, just prior to his crucifixion, did what? Hosted the disciples for dinner And over the dinner table, what did he talk about? His coming death and the new covenant in his blood. Then he commanded us to repeat that scene in essence every time we engage in communion. Well, in Babylon, eating at the king's table had added significance. It was the declaration of two things, total dependence upon Nebuchadnezzar and uncompromised loyalty to Nebuchadnezzar. And that explains why the boy's handler, Ashpenaz, was fearful when he heard the boys refuse the king's table, fearful for their lives and fearful for his own head. And Daniel later on in chapter 11, verse 26 describes people who had been eating at the king's table, but they were plotting Nebuchadnezzar's overthrow. And it was Daniel's way of saying, outwardly they pledged dependence and loyalty, but they were plotting against the king. So in light of that cultural understanding, I'd like to suggest that the reason they said yes to education, civil service, and Babylonian names... But no to consuming the king's food because they knew that act would symbolize total dependence upon and uncompromised loyalty to Nebuchadnezzar. And their dependence was upon God and their loyalty was to God and God alone. And that's why they saw that choice as requiring a no. That's why they saw that choice as defining. They understood the choices that define us are the ones that reveal our ultimate devotion. And God's people reserve that devotion for God alone. Not God and anything else. Not God and country. Not God and military. Not God and political party A. Not God and political party B. Not God and politician A. Not God and politician B. Not God and anything. Anytime you put a and after God, you're getting into the weeds. You're betraying your total dependence. You're de- betraying your total loyalty to God. It's not Jesus' And it's Jesus only. The boys understood that. And I want to stress that from their story today, because in our nation, it's my humble opinion shared by many others, that in an hour when the church needs to shine brightly and more and brighter than ever before, we are severely compromised. <laughs> Compromised by two things, mixed loyalties, God and, and misplaced loyalty, more confidence in the and than in God. So, after our missions month that starts next week when we return to Daniel, I want to unpack some of the implications of the boy's decision. Many of them are uncomfortable. You may want to be away that weekend. But today, I want to close by pointing out the importance of symbolic acts in this culture, and specifically that one of those symbolic and defining acts is, I believe, your participation in ACAC. That may sound preposterous, preposterous, so let me explain it. You don't need me to tell you we live in an increasingly fractured, and polarized culture. Us versus them and no middle ground. And sociologists have been predicting this for a long time and so have theologians. Because in times of trouble, in times of rapid change, in times of uncertainty, things produced when a culture turns away from God, people look for their own people. They look for their tribe. They look for people who look like them, people who talk like them, people who think like them. People who are aligned with them ethnically, culturally, economically, and politically. They look for their people so that they can hunker down and feel like they're defending their values, their interests, their identity, their turf, their future, their security, and unbeknownst to them, their idols. We also live in a culture that is consumer-minded and, as a result, increasingly selfish because if you dance to the tune of consumerism, the day comes when you have to pay the piper. And in this setting of depolarization and tribalism and consumerism, God has called us at ACAC to stand out as distinctively different. The reality is God has called his church everywhere to stand out as distinctively different. We are to be salt in the midst of decay. We are to be like a city on a hill. We are to be light in the darkness. We are to demonstrate, we are to offer the world a workable, viable alternative, a better way than this destructive nonsense. And toward that end, on this annual meeting weekend, I want to say that God has called us at ACAC to be a place where intentional, unapologetic, ethnic, economic, generational, and political diversity replaces the intentional isolation that blinds us to our sins and to God's concern. And trust me, isolation will blind you to both, your own sins and God's heartbeat and concerns. Many times we pray for things that we stubbornly resist. Jesus taught us to pray, deliver us from evil. Notice not deliver me. The Lord's prayer is entirely in the plural. It's designed to make you think community, not just think about yourself. Deliver us from evil. But here's the problem. You can never be delivered from evil that you haven't yet recognized and that you refuse to acknowledge. Nobody gets delivered from evil they don't recognize. Nobody gets delivered from evil they refuse to acknowledge. So what does God do in answer to the prayer? Lord, deliver us from evil. He puts us in places where we come face to face with our own complicity in evil and the realization that sin isn't just out there, it's also in here. And the place where God wants to accomplish that is the church. The church is a place where the troubled should find comfort. But it's equally a place where the far too comfortable should be deeply troubled. Troubled by God pulling back the curtain and saying, that's you. Remember when the prophet Nathan told King David story? And at the end of the story, what did he say to David? David, that's you. Ooh, what a painful epiphany. Well, the church is where God wants you to have painful epiphanies. If you shun places like that, if you shun the inconvenient truths that a diverse congregation calls you to face, if you seek a monocultural experience in the church, then you will discover that monocultural churches are a great place to hide from God. And I say that without apology. Because if you just hang with people who look like you, think like you, vote like you, spend like you, live where you live, etc., 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 you're not going to recognize how evil has affected your life. You're not going to recognize your misplaced loyalties. You're not going to recognize your divided devotions. You're not going to recognize your double-mindedness, and then the deliverance that you're praying for will be delayed if it isn't forfeited altogether. See, it's only as I'm in the presence of people whose life story is different than mine whose daily experience is different than mine, whose persuasions are different than mine, that I begin to see mine in the accurate light of God's word. And if you'll commit yourself to places of diversity, the deliverance follows that diversity. Secondly, God has called us to be a place where his word informs our politics rather than a place where his word is prostituted to affirm our politics and thereby compromising our ultimate loyalties and our ultimate confidences. The church of Jesus Christ should not be an American political party of prayer. That's blasphemy. That's idolatry. And yet in many places, truth be known, that's what the church has become. Republicans in prayer or Democrats at prayer denouncing the other side and overdosing on smug self-righteousness while both sides miss God. And the culture goes to hell in a handbasket for lack of credible witness and people powerful enough to do ministry in a corrupt culture. One of the beauties of this place is in an election year seeing Republican bumper stickers next to Democrat bumper stickers. Maybe next time around we'll have socialists and we'll have apathetics and disengaged and sick of it alls and, and all the rest. But coming in to worship together because the Christ who unites them takes priority over any temporary political system that would divide them. And let me tell you something, frankly, if you divide with your brothers and sisters in Christ over politics, your ultimate devotions are the ones you divide over. If you divide with a brother or sister in Christ over politics, you've just indicated your ultimate devotion is to those politics rather than to the clear commandments and the pastoral prayer of Jesus who said, I would that they would be one like the Father and the Spirit and I are one and that the world would know them by the way they love one another, not the way they denounce one another on Facebook because of different political persuasions and question one another's Christian credentials because they didn't vote a particular way. Hogwash! If that's what you want in a church, there are many places in Pittsburgh where you can get that. Don't let the door hit you where the good Lord split you. That's the one place where we're always alike, isn't it? We've got to be talking more about this political prostitution when we return to Daniel. I think it's the major thing facing the church right now. When, when leaders of denominations stand up and say a particular candidate is America's last hope of revival, I just want to reach through the television and kill them in Jesus' name. <laughs> <laughs> you talk about blasphemy. I don't care what party. A sinful man is the nation's last hope of revival. My God, what have you been smoking? And this stuff, this stuff passes for Christianity while the world laughs at us. While the world says, wait a minute, we're getting confused. You're the people always standing for morality. Now... When there's immorality, you excuse it in the name of something else. Are you moral or are you not moral? And don't blame the world for being confused. They're just working off the signals we're sending them. Why are Christians absolutists on morality but relativists when their favorite candidate is immoral? And again, I don't care which candidate. I'm not Republican or Democrat. They're both, both hideously deficient, both hideously far from the word of God. I vote, yes. I vote for the lesser of two evils as best I can perceive it. Finally, God has called us to be a place where he can transform us into selfless servants who accept inconvenience, as the necessary price of mission rather than self-centered consumers who lack both the credibility and the power to do mission. All that to say, your participation in this faith community, despite the unavoidable inconveniences and challenges of our urban setting, despite the rather uncomfortable disconcerting truths that come out in a diverse setting your participation here is a powerful symbolic gesture from time to time on the weekends i'm not in the pulpit i I like just to circle the block in my automobile and watch you come in and go out because it's a beautiful scene Because in a highly racialized city like Pittsburgh, and we are a racism hotbed, in an extremely polarized nation that's already in the midst of a social civil war, to watch young, old, urban, suburban, black, Asian, Hispanic, Caucasian, Democrat, Republican, walking out of here talking to each other, smiling, enjoying one another's presence. You don't get to see that everywhere you go in America, and America needs to see that. Yes. America needs to know. <laughs> needs to know that there is a better way, but if we, don't, if we don't commit ourselves to places like this, we'll just look like another version of haters. We, we just use scripture verses to make our hatred legitimate. I love the church, but I don't like what it's become. I want to be a part of the solution, not a part of the problem. So let me suggest in closing, those are the words you've been waiting for, closing. <laughs> that your participation here is a powerful symbolic gesture that says this, and I'm going to repeat it twice. That's a redundancy, isn't it? If you repeat it, it is twice. Duh. (laughs) Here it is. Others may choose the path of least resistance in God's kingdom, but I choose the path of greatest impact for God's kingdom. Others may choose the path of least resistance in God's kingdom, Just hang with people like me and I don't have to think. I want to choose the path of greatest impact for God's kingdom, a place where I have to be uncomfortable and think all the time. And I'm convinced that people who make that latter choice will find it is the defining choice of their life. It will define them for their devotion to God and God alone, not God and. Church, it's time we got out of diapers, put our big boy pants on, and quit talking about the Word of God and start actually doing it. That's the only hope of this perverse and sick culture in which we live. Let's pray together. Gracious Heavenly Father, when the night is darkest, the light shines the brightest in the darkness of this American night, help the church to shine brightly without the filters of classism, generational differences, racism, politics, and all the other bushels that hide that light. And Lord, help us to be a part of the solution and not a part of the problem. And let that be our defining choice in Jesus' name. Amen.